Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. In the last several years, I have done my best to pay attention to how spiritual traditions and religions have changed with the times. Change in society, politics, religion, and tradition is often difficult and comes with growing pains. A new book that jumped out at me recently is American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity by Dr. Anne Gleig, and the book is out now from Yale Press. I wanted to have Dr. Gleig on the show to discuss online sanghas, which I have considered joining, deinstitutionalized Buddhism, and the modernization of Buddhism. This book contains debates around mindfulness, sex scandals, technology, and generational divides in Buddhist Dharma. I highly recommend it, not only because it's intriguing scholarship, but because it's just a great read if you are at all involved or interested in the American Buddhism scene. Dr. Ann Gleig is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Central Florida. She is co-editor of Homegrown Gurus, From Hinduism in America to American Hinduism, and has published widely on contemporary Buddhism. It was truly a pleasure to have her on the show, so please enjoy our conversation on her research and her new book, American Dharma. Dr. Ann Gleig, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for the invite. You're totally welcome. Can you just spend a moment introducing yourself and tell us and the audience who you are and what you do? Um, Yeah, sure. Well, um, in short, I am a professor, an associate professor. I just recently got tenure. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Of religion and cultural studies at the University of Central Florida. Um, I'm from Liverpool, just to in case um, the audience is startled by my accent. I'm I'm not a native to Florida. (laughs) And my research area is um, Buddhism uh, in America, primarily. Wonderful. How did you come to care about Buddhism as an academic? Like, what's the story, the backstory there? The backstory is a long and kind of probably boring one to most people. But essentially, I was... You know, I had a I had an existential interest um, in Buddhism and uh, forms of Hinduism, especially kind of non-dual Buddhism and Hinduism. And so, when it came, you know, it's time to to go to university, age eighteen. I informed my mum to her distress that I was going to study theology and religious studies and not English literature, as she had assumed. And it was quite funny, actually, because the first thing she said was, you're going to study theology. You haven't been to mass for three years. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from a Catholic family, um, which also probably really shaped me. So I've always really been interested in religion. Excellent. Well, and what's really interesting about your uh, interest in English literature as well is that so many of the allusions that we find in modern literature are biblical and religious in nature. So you kind of went back even farther in time. Yeah. And also, actually, you know, thinking about it, you know, my earliest encounters, some of my earliest encounters as a teenager with Buddhism were really, you know, through literary forms, through, um, I guess, what we what scholars call beat Buddhism now, 
which is a very, you know, selective, romantic, um, American kind of version of Buddhism. So, you know, people like novelists like Jack Kerouac and poets like Allen Ginsberg. And um, so, yeah, so I, I, you know, literature is, yeah, definitely being a kind of close relation to religious studies for me too. Fantastic. Well, something that really jumped out at me as I was reading your new book, American Dharma, which we will discuss at length momentarily, is the kind of similarities that you and I seem to maybe possibly have as far as our practice. Um, I personally really enjoyed reading about your somewhat sporadic approaches to practicing (laughs) in convert Buddhist groups because I can relate. Like, this is how I've been in the past as well. And like right now, I'm not really practicing at all. But I think about it. What do you think is the reason for your sporadic practice over the years? Approach. Yeah, I think, you know, I actually use that sentence uh, when I'm locating myself as a researcher at the start of the book. So, yeah, just, you know, for those who haven't read the book, I'm, you know, I've been, I'm in my mid 40s now, and I guess I've been practicing on and off um, in Buddhist groups since I was a teenager. Um, Again, another complicated question, but I think essentially I would say that there's been times in which my intellectual and political um, commitments and interests have cohered with Buddhism and times in which they have really conflicted. And the times where I felt a lot of conflict, it's normally, you know, I've just felt, you know, unable to practice. So some of it is, you know, struggles that I've felt kind of reconciling, you know, my feminist commitments or, you know, just, I guess, just, you know, a real interest in in history um, and kind of critical thought with certain, you know, Buddhist cultures. So I think some sanghas are more open to, you know, critical kind of thought and, and their, you know, members kind of wrestling with other discourses and not just Buddhism. Um, but I've been practicing quite consistently for, for um, let's see, I started to practice at Door Mountain. It's a Tibetan Buddhist um, group in Houston. Uh, the teachers are Anne Harvey and, uh, sorry, Anne Klein and Harvey Aronson. So I actually started practicing there when I was a grad student in, I think, started in 2004. So it's been quite a while now, about 15 years. Um, but I, then I did move away from, from Houston. So that's, you know, some other different challenges, kind of pragmatic challenges. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, I think, you know, Buddhism is something that I kind of move closer to and I move, I move back and forth from, you know, at different periods of my life. I completely relate. Um, So I was really excited to see your new book come out recently, and it's from Yale Press. It's called American Dharma, and the subtitle struck me. It says, Buddhism Beyond Modernity. What is modernity in Buddhism? (laughs) That's a really, that's another really hard question that really we could have the whole podcast um, just about, you know, what is modernity? So do you want me to talk about modernity as an historic uh, period and a kind of cultural and intellectual project? If or, you'd like. I mean, so me all the terms that, um, sorry. Well, I mean, I could talk about modernity as modernity or I could talk about, you know, Buddhism in modernity or, or what we what scholars, you know, call uh, Buddhist modernism. 
Yes, let's talk about Buddhist modernism. I feel like yeah. that might be the most appropriate one. Yeah, I think that would be kind of easier. So essentially, Buddhist modernism is a scholarly term. It's there's there's a few terms similar. So we also talk about Protestant Buddhism. We talk about modern Buddhism, Reform Buddhism, and it essentially refers to the forms of Buddhism that emerge from the encounter between traditional Asian Buddhism and Western modernity uh, under the conditions of colonialism. So in um, Burma, uh, Myanmar now, but Burma then, um, you know, was in, uh, was invaded by uh, the British and Buddhists in Burma uh, responded to the challenge of, you know, the colonizing powers of Britain and also the challenge of, you know, the religion that the colonizers brought, which was Christianity. And, you know, a similar process happened in uh, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and then also in countries that weren't directly colonized, um, Thailand and um, Japan, they, although they weren't directly colonized, they were responding to the challenge and, you know, the opportunity also of the of, of modernity of the modern world. So some of those, you know, that they wanted to respond to, you know, claims um, around science, you know, the values of science, the value of the individual, uh, the value of democracy, the values that, that mark modernity. Um, the ideals of modernity. So often one of the things that Buddhists did uh, was, you know, they basically, you know, presented forms of Buddhism that were compatible with modernity. So here is really, you know, it's really here is where really we see the birth of what Don Don Lopez, Donald Lopez calls uh, the scientific Buddha. So this is the kind of you know, the, the image of the Buddha as a kind of early scientist who was, you know, Buddhism as, you know, a rational religion. And it's it's really the kind of Buddhism that's, you know, that you can kind of, the, you can see the kind of air to it in the, in the modern mindfulness movement and the dialogues between uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and, you know, Western neuroscientists and, and international neuroscientists. Um, so it's it's a particular it's a particular form of Buddhism, you know that's re that really shows both you know influences from you know canonical kind of pre-modern Buddhism, but also the modern kind of world and and values. Okay, I see. So there's a lot of um, history that goes into this, and a lot of uh, you know cultural influence as well. And there's some terms in the book that people often hear today in the world, but they may or may not really get, like in simple terms, what they mean. So these terms are modernism, which we just discussed, postmodernism, postcolonialism, and post-secular. So I used to be in grad school from <laughs> 2009 to 2012, and I used to read these terms so often in books, and it was, um, it, but it's been a while. And these terms sound great, and it might be uncool of me to say this, but I sometimes am not really 100% sure what some of these terms mean, especially now that I haven't been reading about them in several years. So I'm curious if we can just briefly set the record straight. Um, yeah. you, you just described modernism. Can you describe so, sort of postmodernism as like a general theory? Because your book lays it out clearer than I think I've ever read it. 
Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say, you know, all of the terms are contested terms. In the, so even, you know, amongst academics, there's a lot of debate about what these terms mean. Um, so I'm, I'm really going to give, you know, really kind of general kind of definitions here. But essentially, um, postmodernity is, you know, often dated um, around the mid 20th century. And it's essentially a kind of reaction against the modern world or a reaction against or a kind of disillusionment with some of the promises of the modern world. So one of the big narratives of the modern world was like modernity often defines itself in opposition to the traditional and often in opposition to the religious. So the idea, one of the ideas in modernity was you know, science and reason are going to bring in this new age of progress. And, you know, there'll be this movement away from the superstition um, and the injustices of religion, you know, and we'll kind of march into this utopic kind of modern age. Um, and so, you know, this idea of like progress, ethical progress and technological progress. But then, of course, you know, in the 20th century, the two world, you know, amongst other things, the two world wars happened. And so because, you know, science and kind of modern ways of thinking and organizing and systems, modern systems were so involved in the in the world wars, it really kind of led, you know, for people to, you know, philosophers and cultural theorists to really question, you know, question modernity. So we often, you know, scholars often talk about postmodern as this period of scepticism of the big stories of modernity, you know, science as a kind of answer to everything. Um, and so um, it's often, there's also a pushback against um, just as the, some of the other narratives of modernity, which is this idea of universal universalism and individualism. And so often we, we, we think about that the postmodern kind of brings in an appreciation of diversity, of pluralism, um, also just tends towards the relative, you know, the ethically relative. Yeah, sure. So it's, you know, it, it's basically a questioning of modernity. Um, and then the post-secular. So one of the narratives also connected to modernity was the secularization thesis. And this was basically an idea in sociology, in the sociology in which it was believed that, you know, basically my, I'm using mankind, you know, like intentionally in quotations, you know, because the language was, you know, kind of androcentric then. But, you know, mankind would move out of religion altogether and would be would become eventually secular. So, you know, a lot of sociologists kind of predicted the death of religion and that didn't happen. You know, religion didn't die. In fact, it kind of made a comeback. You know, there were these kind of fundamentalist kind of backlashes against liberalism and secularism. And then there was also the explosion of kind of spirituality, like the institutionalized forms of spirituality. So the post-secular is, you know, basically saying, you know, what comes after secularity and it essentially kind of refit what, you know, one of the marks of the, the post-secular is also a blurring of the lines between the secular and the religious. So I think, you know, one good example of this for non-academic audiences, if I hadn't, if I haven't already lost you, sorry. No, but keep one going. Example is, you know, the mindfulness movement. So the mindfulness movement has garnered so much attention 
And one of the, you know, one of the big questions that, you know, many different, you know, scholars and practitioners have been wrestling with is the question of, is mindfulness religious? Is it Buddhist or is it secular? Um, And I, and I think that, you know, it's both and neither. (laughs) I mean, it's a phenomenon that kind of really disrupts that boundary. So I think the mindfulness movement would be a great example of what the post-secular is. Um, and then the post-colonial, you know, post the post-colonial refers to both the end of, you know, colonization as, you know, the nation, as colonized nations like India became, you know, gained independence and also to a body of, you know, theory and literature which interrogates colonialism and offers, you know, liberation projects to you know, enact post-colonialism on multiple levels. So in relationship to something like Buddhism, if you see, you know, if you see debates about, say, cultural appropriation in Buddhism, you know, they are often reflecting a kind of post-colonial sensibility. Or if you see debates around, you know, pointing out racism in white Buddhist sanghas, you know, they also reflect a kind of post-colonial sensibility um where white but you know where there's an interrogation a questioning of some white buddhist assumptions around what is real buddhism you know so they are all academic terms but i think that you know again for non-academic readers the best way to really get to the terms is through the case studies in the book um which i tried to write non you know not really heavily theoretically so they would be accessible Oh, they're definitely accessible. And so I was reading something, and I just found it in the book, and it's early on. And you write about how the key modernist features of Buddhist modernism is a privileging of individual meditation practice, the neglect of elements discarded in the modernization process, such as sangha and ritual, the psychologization of Buddhism, and the overwhelmingly white, liberal, middle, and upper middle class demographic. And these have increasingly come under scrutiny within American convert communities. So that to me is kind of like where the postmodern is reshaping rather than sort of like replacing because all these things are coming under scrutiny rather than being destroyed. Right. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, again, postmodern, it's a, it's definitely a problematic term, but the, I mean, even the tradition, the modern doesn't even replace the traditional, you know, these are, these are huge historic periods and there's always counter narratives uh, happening within, you know, historic periods, you, you, you know, the modern doesn't wipe out the traditional. So the terms are really, you know, you know, you, you have to lo- use them loosely. But postmodernity, I would say, I think I define in the book is both a continuation of modernity, but also a, you know, a reshaping or a correction of modernity. So it really kind of accounts for the multiplicity of Buddhist forms that you can find today. So you can, you know, you can find very, again, you know, my hands are up in quotation marks, you can find very traditionalist Buddhist sanghas, um, and then you can find spaces, you know, meditation studios where you don't even see the word Buddhism. But if you, you know, know Buddhism, you can kind of see the implicit Buddhist, you know, elements to the room. So I think, you know, it's a, again, it's a term that covers a broad amount of phenomena. Um, but some, you know, you pointed out the the most pertinent ones. Wonderful. Okay, so now when we look at the title, so earlier I talked about the modernism word in your title, and there's also another word in your title that I want to talk about, American Dharma. 
American. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about the, I want you to talk a little bit about the essential versus cultural Buddhism terms as well and why this matters to American Buddhism. So, yeah, no, that's a really good question. So I think essentially, you know, one of the, one of the kind of characteristics of Buddhism in America has been a distinction between, you know, what's often being expressed as essential Buddhism and cultural Buddhism. And scholars have used this distinction as well. In fact, in some ways, it comes from an early typology uh, that was distinguished between different forms of Buddhism in America. But basically, when used within sanghas, you know, by practitioners, the essential is, is often referred to meditation or Buddhist philosophy, like enlightenment, you know, meditation as, you know, part of, you know, the path to liberation, that that's like the heart of Buddhism and that other aspects of Buddhism, um, such as community or ritual or devotion have been kind of narrated as, oh, that's just cultural Buddhism, right? And then cultural Buddhism has been, so so that that's a distinction that's often been made. And then there's also been a racialized alignment with that. So um, white Americans have been aligned with, you know, essential Buddhism, like they're doing the real, you know, the real, the real Buddhism, the heart of Buddhism. And then Asian American, you know, heritage communities have been aligned with cultural Buddhism. Now, of course, that sets up a racialized hierarchy, right, where white Buddhists are kind of at the top of the, you know, at the top of the mountain doing the real thing. And Asian American Buddhists are seen as, you know, doing these non-essential elements. So, you know, there's some, you know, really problematic racialized racial issues there. So I think that that's, you know, even though, you know, white Buddhists, including, you know, white Buddhist scholars, I want to kind of include myself here, you know, have been slow to kind of catch on. You know, Asian American Buddhists for, you know, decades have been saying, hey, you know, this is really, you know, this is this is a this is a violence towards our communities. But I think now, you know, what you'll find is, you know, these great articles in I think Lions Raw, uh, there was a great article called We've Been Here All Along, um, uh, by Funi Su, who uh, is a academic and Buddhist practitioner where she, she basically talks about this distinction, problematizes the distinction. So I use, you know, that article and other, and other work, you know, on that ve- in that vein as, you know, evidence towards this post-colonial, post-modern kind of sensibility across American Buddhism. You know, because before, you know, you wouldn't really see that being interrogated in the, you know, in the Buddhist media as much. Um, I, I'm definitely going to find that article. That's a good recommendation. Yeah, and also I just I think you did you recently interview uh, Duncan Williams? Sure did. Yeah, that was great. So yeah, so you know his work, of course, is really so important in you know illuminating the fact that you know while most of you know the you know while a lot of the Buddhist mainstream press has been focusing on white convert lineages and um, you know Japanese Buddhists have been you know keeping Buddhism alive in America for, you know, for decades under intense conditions of violence and oppression. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, you know, you know, both, you know, white convert practitioners and also, again, I want to include myself, um, 
you know, white Buddhist scholars who focused on convert lineages, you know, were really, really being schooled, you know, appropriately. And I'm sure, you know, we've, we've taken a while to kind of wake up to this. Yeah. Well, okay. So you mentioned earlier the the mindfulness movement. I kind of want to go back to that for a second. Yeah. There's, there's been like a deluge of articles the last few years in every popular newspaper in the country about, you know, what you call, oh, what in, on page two of your book says scientifically proven benefits of mindfulness and meditation practice. What does science and scientists and brain scientists currently agree upon related to mindfulness practices? Um, that's a great question. And I actually think that they don't agree on things. So essentially, you know, again, you know, this is this is kind of repicking up that, you know, the modernist scientific buddha lineage and essentially you know mindfulness kind of exploded in a way out of nowhere you know suddenly was on you know the front cover of time magazine and you know everyone was doing mindfulness you can find mindfulness books in the airport and at the supermarket and one of the things that was driving you know that has drove that drove and continues i guess to drive this explosion was you know the scientific backing and legitimacy of mindfulness so you did see, you know, the, the all of a sudden, you know, the, you know, all of these, you know, studies claiming, you know, making these quite big claims about, you know, mindfulness. Only 10 minutes of mindfulness can rewire your brain mm. um, and things like this. And then there was a kind of backlash, you know, against these studies. Um, and I kind of detail that in, you know, in one of in the, I think the second chapter in my book. But I think that, you know, essentially among in the backlash, you know, there the were a lot of the backlash happened on multiple levels. Um, but one of the levels was, you know, basically pointing out that the scientific, you know, claims were actually, you know, not as not as founded as they, as they seem to be. So I don't know the particulars. You know, I actually don't follow scientific studies very closely. I'm more interested in the rhetoric of science and how that operates within Buddhist communities and, and the backlash against that. Um, but I think that, you know, mostly, you know, that the a big problem was with this. The, it was a hype. There was a massive overhype of the science of mindfulness. And so I just want to I think there's a great article that's probably available online I think it's called actually I think it's actually called Don't Believe the Hype and it's by Kathy Kerr um and I think it's in Tricycle magazine but Kathy was a neuroscientist she she died uh, tragically of cancer and she was a great loss I think to the Buddhist and neuroscientific community she's a really wonderful human as well um but she she really discusses you know very carefully the scientific claims as a, as a neuroscientist herself, um, so I generally I just think the what you what you know what you see in magazines I don't think the science actually you know backs that up, but I do think there are some scientific studies that do show you know more modest benefits um, of of mindfulness. Okay, so that's kind of what the scientists think. So now I'm curious what you know about what the Buddhists think. So there's like this huge push to secularize mindfulness practices which in the past, as you mentioned earlier, has been associated with religion. So this is sometimes referred to as Mick mindfulness as well, um, yeah. which, I, which I find entertaining. Um, has, this, has, has this created any conflict and schism within American Buddhism? Who's, yes, cool, who's, who's yes. cool with it and who's not cool with it? <laughs> it's, it's caused a lot of schism. And yeah. 
actually, I think, also produced a couple of people's careers for them as well. So mm. that's not a bad thing. So basically, it's it's a real there's a there's a there's a big division. So on the one hand, you know, there are some of the you know most well known American Buddhist teachers, um, Jack Cornfield, uh, Joseph Goldstein, um, I think Norman Fisher from the Zen world um, have been, you know, really supporters of secular mindfulness. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh is also, you know, Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh has also been a supporter of, you know, taking mindfulness into into non kind of Buddhist contexts. So on the one hand, you've got these Buddhists, um, you know, Buddhist modernists essentially who are, and of course, John, John Kabat-Zinn is a, you know, kind of the, at the very forefront. So they're kind of they have, you know, been at the forefront of the mindfulness movement. And then there's a, then there's been a backlash. So I'd say the backlash. I'd say there's two main groups against secular mindfulness. So I would say some of them are against secular mindfulness as more traditionalist Buddhists. So they are, I think Alan Wallace is probably a good example. So Alan Wallace would be someone, Alan Wallace, and I think it was um, Ajan, Jeff, Thanasiro, Biku. They they basically, I think it was him, but they look at how like mind, secular mindfulness is different from mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta and in the context of the Pali Canon. So they're basically, especially Alan Wallace is basically arguing that secular mindfulness is a very diluted version of what, you know, right mindfulness is in the Pali Canon. So you could, that that's a kind of traditionalist critique. And then there's another group who are against mindfulness and they, they're more, I, they're probably best, you know, ca- ca- categorized as engaged buddhists so i'd say maybe you know david loy and ron Peirce's article beyond mac mindfulness um i think you say mac Ma- i say mac mindfulness but i noticed you said mick mindfulness so oh yeah sorry that's my american you, midwest you know, upbringing americans say that so maybe it's a bit <laughs> thing but essentially they critique mindfulness less from a traditionalist perspective and more from a kind of neo-marxist perspective so they're concerned by the ways in which mindfulness is becoming a tool of kind of corporate America, you mm. know. So they're concerned that, you know, you know, corporations, you know, are paying their workers, you know, low wages and making them work like long hours. And instead of improving, you know, those structural conditions, you know, they're bringing in, you know, mindfulness trainings. So they're basically they that group of people that group of Buddhists who are against mindfulness in a way are basically you know saying mindfulness is kind of functioning as a kind of opium um, you know kind of contemporary kind of opium of the of the workers opium of the people mm. um, so they basically combine a kind of traditionalist and a kind of neo Marxist for want of a better word critique. Um, but that's very distinct from a traditionalist perspective, right? Because in the Pali Canon, the Buddha's not talking about, you know, structural work condition conditions, you know. He's, so it, it's a different concern. Um, so I, I think it's important to kind of note the difference between, you know, traditionalists and kind of neo-Marxist Buddhist critiques. Interesting. Okay, so something that also plagues the buddhist world are sex scandals which you spend a lot of time on the book discussing um and so 
in the past, there's a there's a Facebook Zen group that I follow, and some people get really bent out of shape whenever sex scandals um, are brought up on the discussion group. And you know, I had a, a past guest on the show, Michael Downing, who wrote the oh really, yeah the really yeah. well known shoes outside the door about San Francisco Zen Center, which documents their sex scandal in the 1980s, and Richard Baker Roshi. So the people on the Facebook group are saying things like, move on from this. Why are we still discussing this? Yet these types of scandals continue. And you list a lot in the book, like Meizumi Roshi, Genpo Merzel, Daibo Satsu, Joshu Sasaki, Chogim Trumpa, Osel Tenzin, Sogyal Rinpoche, and more. So what's going on with American Buddhism with regards to gender and sex abuse? How is that? Is it Are things improving? Is this, you know, is this challenging of modernism making changes happening yeah well i mean i think you you know really captured it yourself i mean if only we could move on you know i'm sure i'm sure i I think everyone you know would like to move on but as you know as the fact is that these abuses have been you know reoccurring quite consistently since you know the 1980s really so it's really kind of what wow 40 years into you know these sex abuses um it's quite i'd say well i think that i'm not sure i would necessarily frame it as a postmodern challenge to modern buddhism because i think a lot of modernist buddhists have also been wrestling you know with the issue of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct definitely fair um, yeah so i think but i think there's probably you know, there's a few different responses. I mean, one main response has been to, you know, I think there's been a kind of recognition. Uh, let's take the example of Soto Zen, because Soto Zen Buddhism has, has done quite a bit of work in basically, you know, teachers like Grace Shryerson, Barry Majid um, have um, basically called for more kind of psychological kind of training um, as part of, you know, Zen training. So, you know, thinking about work on, you know, what's kind of appropriate boundaries, you know, how to negotiate, you know, power in, you know, Buddhist, you know, sanghas. So I think there's, you know, there's many Buddhists who want to bring in, you know, outside discourses. Um, like psychotherapy or you know boundary training or and communication trainings into Buddhist sanghas in order to help you know prevent these kind of abuses happening as a kind of preventative tool. So that's one big response. And then there's another response which is you know the prob which thinks well the problem is that you know the sex abuse and sex misconduct has happened because teachers and sanghas haven't paid enough attention to buddhist ethics so that group you know rather than say we need psychological and psychodynamic training they say we need to follow you know we need to follow and take the buddhist you know sexual ethical precepts more seriously um so you know so that's another response And then, you know, I think there's a third response as well, definitely of people who, well, you kind of pointed it out, you know, people who say, you know, it's not really an issue. You know, some people, some people will say, oh, that one teacher did it, you know, but it's not like a systematic issue. 
So they kind of they do the kind of Buddhist bad apple approach where they just kind of target a teacher and they say, you know, wherever they, they might come up with different reasons why that teacher's gone kind of bad. But they they essentially say this is not an issue that sanghas need to, you know, really tackle. It's more just these, you know, individual bad guys, you know. Um, and then, you know, there's also, a, I'd say, a fourth group um, who actually don't really even accept that these are sexual abuse um, issues um, that might say, you know, well, I don't know if you've been following some of the Tibetan cases, but, you know, in Rigpa, you know, there's many students of Rigpa who fully support uh, Sogyal Lakar, you know, Sogyal Rinpoche, um, and they say, you know, the acts of violence that were publicly documented were actually, and sexual violence and physical violence, you know, were actually some form of teaching, you know, a kind of crazy wisdom teacher, teaching. Um, so you have really got so many different narratives um, in the Buddhist communities, you know, as a response to these abuses. And it is an area where you are seeing, I think, tensions between progressive and, you know, conservative Buddhists. So, you know, some progressive Buddhists have taken inspiration from the Me Too movement and they've had, you know, like debates or workshops or even, you know, retreats on, you know, what's the impact of Buddhism for, you know, sorry, what's the impact of Me Too for Buddhism? And then, you know, others who are saying, you know, that's got no place in Buddhism and, you know, this is just progressives like ruining our tradition. So it is actually such an, it's actually the topic of my latest book, I'm working on a book just on sexual abuse in, in American Buddhism with Dr. Amy Langenberg, who's a specialist in uh, sexual ethics in classical Buddhism. She's a textualist, so we're kind of joining forces. Um, but you do it is so fascinating to both of us because you do see in the different responses to the sexual abuse, you do see all of these different kind of subsets of Buddhists, you know, yeah, well, and something else just jumped out at me too, the way that some people would say, uh, you know, that's not a problem, or they would downplay it, or they would say that that's a teaching, and that really, uh, that, that actually scares me, that makes me very nervous, because, you know, I'm a parent, and I'm like, what if my child ever happens to go into a, you know, a group where those types of things happen, and what, what if I go into a group like that, and those types of things just really scare me, <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny you should say that because I was um, I was part of a panel at the American Academy of Religion in 2018, I guess it was just last year, and uh, there were four or five, uh, five of us on the panel, scholars and a, a, a journalist who works on uh, Buddhist sexual abuse in, in Holland and also a uh, one of the directors of Faith Trust, who is, which is an organisation that has gone into Buddhist communities uh, who are dealing with sexual abuse and misconduct scandals to kind of work with them and, you know, help them kind of work through it and kind of re reshape. And the respondent to the panel was Sarah Jacoby. Jacoby. She's an amazing scholar of Tibetan Buddhism. And she opened her response by, you know, she was kind of saying the same thing, you know, like, what Buddhist group would I feel comfortable, you know, sending my daughter to? Hmm. And I found it extremely powerful. Um, but, you know, some others, uh, you know, it was interesting because an, a, a, another a Buddhist in the audience, you know, came up to me afterwards and said, 
you know, one that even though she found, you know, Sarah's response very, you know, powerful in other ways that, you know, one of the things that she was worried about was the ways in which, you know, the sexual abuse and misconduct scandals had, you know, tainted the whole of Buddhism and kind of also inadvertently, you know, erased, you know, these great female Buddhist teachers, you know, and males as well. I, I mean, I definitely, you know, think there's been some, you know, there's definitely plenty of male Buddhist teachers who haven't been, you know, involved in sex scandals. But, you know, she wanted to point out, you know, there are these great teachers and these great sanghas where there's not sexual, you know, misconduct and abuse. So one of the things that we want to do in our new project, Amy and I, Dr. Langenberg and I, is we're going to look at the Zen Center of Los Angeles and the Roshi there, her uh, name is, I've, I've forgotten her full name, but she, the Roshi there, she is, um, she, they're doing a really amazing thing where they've documented, they've compiled a, they're calling it, a it's a sutta, it's a kind of modern day sutta. And it's basically, it documents a history of abuse that happened, you know, in the Los Angeles Zen Center in the 1980s, but also shows the way they move forward as a community. And so it's 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 like a practice book. It's a, it's a really an extraordinary kind of document. So I think that's, you know, one really kind of positive, kind of, you know, hopeful way, you know, for Buddhist Sanghas in America to move, to come to, you know, to confront this kind of, lineage of sexual abuse and misconduct and to kind of you know move forward um you know because i think you know if, if there was if you have that kind of transparency to the history like being honest this is what happened and this is how we worked with it you know i think that you know i know for me as a you know as a as a queer female that would make me feel you know really safe in that sangha I'm glad that we were able to squeeze some positive hopefulness out of that last little segment um, to look towards the future because, yeah, anyway. Um, so there's there's a, we can never talk about this entire book. There's so much in this book, um, but there's a section that jumped out at me. Uh, I was born in 1983, and a few years ago, um, as I was discovering podcasts, I just typed Buddhism into my podcast apps. And Buddhist geeks jumped out at me. Oh yeah. So, what fascinated you about the Buddhist geeks organization? Yeah, well, it's quite interesting actually. I kind of stumbled on them. I actually stumbled on them by accident. It was really a a very fortuitous accident because I really I did actually really enjoy the research. Um, but I, I said, you know, honestly, essentially, I had some research money uh, left over. And so I was kind of, you know, it's just in academia, it's like if you don't use your research money at the end of the year, you lose it. <laughs> yeah. it, it, just, it. It really carries over, you know. So I had a chunk of research money. I was at Millsaps College at the time. Um, and I was just kind of looking out for, I wanted to do, you know, I want to go to a conference. And I, I somehow, I guess, you know, probably, pop, I can't remember exactly, it probably popped up on Facebook knowing me. I saw, you know, the Buddhist Geeks Conference and I'd actually missed the first one. It was the second one. It was the first one in Boulder. I think it might have been 2012. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll go, and, you know, I'll go and give this a shot. And I was, I was a little intimidated because I wasn't really a tech person. Um, so I didn't automatically gravitate, you know, to to that group. Um, but when I went to the actual conference, I was really kind of struck by 
the energy. There was just a tremendous amount of kind of energy and excitement. And it was had a really different vibe um, than a lot of the other Buddhist events I'd been, you know, kind of attending. It was very, there was a lot of millennials there. It was kind of formatted in a very different way than any retreat or Buddhist conference I'd ever been to. So that really kind of, you know, I just kind of really got my curiosity going and then I, you know, just kind of got on a bit of a field work role with it. Okay. So one of the things I'm curious about is how you see the Buddhist Geeks organization being important generationally um, as like a distinction between boomers, Gen X and like millennial teachers. In what way are they different? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think they are like, well, I think they're, they're really important. I think that you know, Vince, Vince and Emily Horn, the co-founders, um, and I think there was, there's Ryan, someone else whose name I've forgotten, sorry, Ryan, um, they really, they presented themselves as millennials, so they were, I think, you know, they were, they were really, I think, amongst maybe the first Buddhists that I'd kind of, you know, worked with, who explicitly kind of claim the identity of millennial Buddhists. Um, and I think, you know, a big, you know, a big distinction they made between, because, it, you know, I think of Buddhist geeks as a millennial rather than a Gen X, uh, you know, kind mm-hmm. of project. So I did the chapter later on the Gen X te- teachers for the book, but I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm more comfortable mm-hmm. with Gen X. But I think with the millennials, you know, you know, a, a distinguishing feature of them is, you know, their literacy in, you know, social media and technology and how comfortable they kind of are with that kind of hybridity, you know, and bringing Buddhist practice into, you know, these technological, you know, on the surface, you know, secular spaces and really kind of, you know, mixing that up. So they had, you know, a lot of metaphors of like, you know, they talk about hacking the Dharma, you know, they take these like metaphors from, you know, like computer and tech stuff and apply it to their approach to Buddhism. So it was very kind of bricolage, which is, is you know, is a very postmodern quality, you know, where you have these kind of disparate elements kind of brought together. And also they were really talking at the time, because I think Vince's kind of gone through a lot of, you know, I think he's in a different place now. He kind of uh, I think identify well he, he he killed Buddhist geeks and then re kind of rebirthed it um and now but now he's really talking about metadharma um but you know at the time he was you know questioning you know Buddhism as a kind of you know main main narrative and so he was thinking more you know more about like what are the discourses of technology tellers so it would just fit really well into a postmodern kind of framework for me really gotcha i know they've received a lot of backlash as well for about their discussions of psychedelics in meditation what's going on yeah. there well you know what to be honest i'm not really i'm not really up on that conversation um cuz that kind of was ha- i think that's a kind of recent thing i think about 6 months ago um they did that um i think they did a conference in la on psychedelic uh dharma and then there was a lot of backlash and so I think essentially, you know, well, and again, I've, I've not been following this too closely um, because, you know, just for various reasons that I've been working on other stuff. But there seems to have become quite a big crossover between 
you know, the younger, the Buddhist world and the psychedelic kind of ayahuasca uh, kind of community. And, you know, that's got historical precedent because, of course, you know, the psychedelic kind of counterculture in the 1960s, you know, was a massive kind of receptacle for Buddhism. You know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kind of big figures, you know, in Buddhism and, and also in American Hinduism, you know, thinking, yeah, particularly of, you know, Ramdas, Richard, you know, Alpert, you know, they basically, you know, took LSD and then, you know, wanted to, you know, wanted to continue the exploration of consciousness that they had experienced through LSD, you know, by getting into, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism, the forms of Buddhism and Hinduism that kind of came through guru traditions. So you've always had that crossover. I guess that's what I want to say. There's always been, I think, a crossover between Buddhism and hallucinogenics. But I think, you know, it was like big and then, you know, Buddhists kind of, you know, were like, hey, you know, we can't keep taking LSD because, mm. you know, for various reasons, including the fact that it's one of the precepts. is no <laughs> um, Because, I mean, essentially that's, that's, you know, one of the conflicts, right? Like one of the precepts is, no intoxicants so buddhists who are against the psychedelic buddhist kind of ayahuasca crossover you know are pointing that out you know so i think i know brad warner has written he's a zen teacher but he's written a lot on you know he really thinks you know poorly of of this kind of psychedelic buddhism gotcha so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting all of these different subcultures it's just keeping me in a job for it i guess yeah. Well, Dr. Glog, I have a couple more questions for you that are I hopefully are kind of quick. Can you tell yeah, us yeah, uh, or predict and make any predictions about the future of online sanghas and meditation apps? Do you think those things are going to flourish or will we back away from them? I think, you know, that's a, I think, I think both, I mean, you know, if I can be like terribly postmodern, I'd say both and. It. Okay. Uh, you know, one thing that was interesting to me, even over the course of the book, I think it probably took about three years to, to write, um, you know, was I noticed that at the start, you know, of, the, of those three years, you know, there were online sanghas, especially connected to pragmatic dharma that seemed, you know, really flourishing. You know, that when I'd visit the pages, there was like daily debate and people were, you know, sharing their meditation experience and sharing meditation tips. And then, you know, I'd go back to them like, you know, over the course of the three years and they just disappeared. And it was like, wow, there'd been no activity for like three months, you know. So I, and I, so I think you are, you know, I think there is definitely going to be these, you know, very, you know, short term sanghas. You know, I think that. I guess one thing I'm seeing online is that sanghas online often form around particular issues. So issues that, you know, that they're not finding in their, you know, main street, their local sanghas. So maybe they want to talk about, you know, a certain type of meditation practice and their local meditation group isn't doing that meditation. So, you know, it's, it, it, it serves a certain purpose and then it like, they get what they need and then it kind of like disappears. So I think that that will continue. I think there'll be a proliferation of, you know, temporal sangha, online sanghas around specific issues or meditation practices or issues of, you know, sexual abuse, you know, maybe responses. But then on the other hand, I do think that, you know, online sanghas for many Buddhists are a kind of lifeline. And I think it's also, you know, connected to geography. 
So, you know, many many online Buddhists have reported to me, you know, if it wasn't for this online Sangha, you know, I would just be practicing alone. You know, there's no, you know, I live in, you know, rural X and the nearest Buddhist, you know, place is 50 miles away and I can't drive there. Or So I think that, you know, there's definitely, you know, long-term stable communities that will continue. And then I think you're also seeing a lot of hybrid Sanghas, um, which, you know, have physical locations, but also attract, you know, people, you know, not just nationally, but also internationally. And then, you know, and, and kind of live streaming of teachings like the group I'm in and, you know, Houston, I just go to one one retreat a year um, there. And but we, you know, they do retreats all throughout the year. And there's, you know, there's people like Skype in from Europe and, you know, all over the States. So. So, yeah. So I think that's, you know, and also I think that's going to definitely just continue these kind of hybrid kind of Buddhist sanghas. Do you remember when you submitted the final draft of your book to Yale Press when did I so I can't remember I think I think it was a January and it was probably the January before it came out so when did it come out well the book is just out this year it's just out. okay sorry so I'm just so sorry it's the end of semester was I, it January 2018 that you must, submitted it yeah it must have been, yeah, must have been January 2018 okay so, so, so here's, yeah, it was just over a year in press so here's my my question yeah. what what has happened since you finished the book that you wish was in it wow that's a yeah that's a really good question um I don't, you know, actually, I, I don't, I, there's nothing that I really, okay, the one thing that I do wish that was in it was, it's a theoretical thing, which might not be as interesting to you, but um, the category of the metamodern has become, is kind of like burst, you know, into uh, kind of popularity. Um, and the metamodern is, is you know what some literary and cultural theorists kind of t- say has replaced the postmodern. <laughs> you know, so they say you know okay, there's premodern, the modern, the postmodern, and now it's a metamodern. Um, and you know, there just seems to be a lot of excitement around the metamodern. So I'm kind of wishing you know I'd kind of included it in my last chapter, where I do you know in, I do reflect on a number of models like the postmodern, the postcolonial, the ultramodern, multiple modernities. Um, I don't know if it would give more than what what's already in there, but I think that it would, you know, attract more readers to the book, which you know is a good thing. Um, and then, just in terms of you know what's been happening in Buddhism since then, I mean, what's most in most you know of most interest to me, and and some some of the reason why, to be honest, I didn't pay that much to the kind of attention to the psychedelic stuff is you know the sexual abuse and sexual misconduct um kind of scandals so that's you know really what my kind of scholarly kind of attention is on right now and also I think you just you are starting to see a lot of really intense and actually sometimes quite nasty kind of arguments around progressive Buddhism you know there's a massive backlash it's actually maybe not even right to call it a backlash because the opposition has been you know there was a there was a front lash, you know, and there was a middle lash as well. But you know, it's kind of interesting to me, even just tracking some of the responses to my scholarship. You know, a lot of you know people who I seem to identify as Buddhists 
are, you know, seem to be really upset at the chapter on racism and white privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, I, there's is just, you know, a lot of, or even like, you know, gender politics. Why are you bringing the Me Too movement into Buddhism? So it's quite interesting because some of the debates, you know, they're more kind of like debates that you might, you probably think that you would find on like Fox News, you know, so they use language like snowflake Buddhists and, you know, this is the kind of left take, leftist takeover of Buddhism. Wow. That's really interesting to me because demographically, you know, scholars have generally said the convert, I've seen convert Buddhism as politically liberal. So the fact that you're seeing what reads as kind of quite right wing, reactionary, sometimes even I would go as far as to say alt-right kind of statements in Buddhist circles is just really fascinating to me. So that's kind of what I'm, you know, tracking currently and in the future, probably. Well, I look forward to reading more of your work as well. Um, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity is a really, really good read. And I'm really grateful to you for squeezing in um, me into your schedule and having this conversation. Oh, thanks, Greg. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I've been a little incoherent and rambly. It's been a really long semester. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, go and uh, have a nice evening. Uh, you too. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.